0: you. On the book of Philippians. We thank you very much for listening with us and we hope that this proves to be beneficial to you in the days to come. Not many know peace. To the southern gentleman, grace is how a southern bell eloquently moves across a room. It indicates charm, good manners, and good family, good upbringing. Peace means there is no war. In times of peace, the gracious charm of the southern bell glides across the ballroom as the violins play. But if you're a Christian, you know these words mean a lot more than this. They speak of the most profound spiritual realities we can understand in the life Christ brings to us. The grace God bestows and the peace he gives have replaced the darkness and the fear that had occupied us for millennia. The greeting we read here was practical and very familiar at that time. This term has been found in thousands of Greek documents uncovered by archaeologists and in letters written by Roman officials. If you were addressing a Roman official, you would say, Tiberius Claudius Caesar, Augustus Germanus Imperator, Pontificus Maximus Tribununciation Power, Council Designate to the City of Alexandria. Greetings. Grace to you from Paul is like greetings to a Roman. The typical Jewish greeting was Shalom Alechem, God's peace unto you. Now, among Jews, there are various opinions as to the meaning here. But you have to realize that whenever you have two Jews, you always get three views, you see. And with Paul, as we mentioned in our previous study, Christ was his goal and his life. His words were not flippant and vacuous. When he said grace, it was a fantastic thing to him. Peace meant more than what you would hear in everyday conversation. Unmerited favor, love undeserved, the baseline of thought in Christian conversation. Peace with Paul ties in with the fact of reconciliation with God. The war is over, and peace is restored. This greeting offered by Paul opens the door for a rational discussion on the topic of grace. Man, being egotistical by nature, perhaps not as boastful and as arrogant as some, but self-centered nonetheless, imagines that God loves him regardless of what he has done, or been, or throughout his life, how he has lived. We're made in the image of God, you see, and God loves his creation right? He's gracious to us because, well, we vote Republican, and we tithe freely and weekly, and God loves us for our efforts to at least tip our hats in his direction. I recall one time Howard Stern, a famous media figure, was mocking Christianity on the Jay Leno show. He pulled out a giant Bible as a prop, and Leno asked him not to do that, saying that it was very disrespectful. Good for Jay. But this did not cause God's head to turn in recognition of Mr. Leno. His love was not quickened due to what J. Leno did. God's grace does not appear on our behalf because of things we have done or said. God demonstrates his love towards us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lydia, as we've read of here in Philippians, the seller of purple, nor the jailer in Acts 16, did anything that attracted God's grace. Lydia realized that as she heard Paul talk and the jailer, as he heard the gospel for the first time, faith comes by hearing, not by sight, doing, or being. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. And if we're to understand the grace of God, we have to start with an understanding that God acts graciously towards us in Christ before we ever did anything to earn his love. His grace comes apart from human merit. Grace is not part of the meritocracy. Sorry, all the good works don't count in God's economy. And so many fail to comprehend what I'm saying entirely. I'm saying that nothing you can do or have done or will do, no matter how generous, selfless, or giving you might be, will cause God's grace to abound towards you. Nothing. God shows his grace to you because God chose to show his grace to you. These things are not being said to support an argument of election or Augustinian theology. They're factual statements that come out in scripture. Look at Cain and consider him. He worked hard, labored long, and brought forth the best of all he produced. And God did not show him any favor at all. Cain knew no grace and refused to consider anything other than his own efforts. If my good works are meaningless, then forget it all. I think they should count. And if not, I quit. Well, you think your way right into hell if you persist with that line of thinking. Now, here's a good illustration of the nature of God's grace. John Newton came from a Christian home in England, but he was orphaned at the age of six, and he lived with a non-Christian relative. In that home, Christianity was mocked, and he was persecuted. At last, to escape the conditions of that home, Newton ran away to sea and became an apprentice seaman in the British Navy. He served in the Navy for some time, At last, he deserted and ran away to Africa. He says that he went there for just one purpose, to sin as much as he wanted to. In Africa, he joined forces with the Portuguese slave trader, and in this man's home, he was very cruelly treated. At times, the slave trader went away on expeditions, and the young man was left under the charge of the slave trader's African wife, the head of his harem. She hated all white men and took out her hatred on Newton. He says that she exercised such power in her husband's absence that she forced him to eat his food off the dusty floor like a dog. At last, the young Newton fled from this treatment and made his way to the coast where he lit a signal fire and was picked up by a ship on its way to England. The captain was disappointed that Newton had no ivory to sell, but because the young man knew something about navigation, he was made a shipmate. He could not even keep his position in that. During the voyage, he broke into the ship's supply of rum, distributed it to the crew so that the members of the crew became drunk. And in a stupor of drunkenness, Newton fell into the sea and almost drowned. Later, Newton's ship encountered heavy winds towards the end of the voyage near Scotland. It was blown off course and it began to sink. Newton was sent down into the hold and he was told to man the pumps. They were taking on water. Newton was afraid, he was scared. He was afraid to die, terrified. He was sure that the ship would sink, and he would drown. He worked the pumps for days, tormented by the fear. and while he was there, working the pumps, he began to cry out to God as he worked. He started to remember verses that had been taught to him as a small child, and as these words, God's words, came to his mind, John Newton was miraculously transformed. He was born again. He went on to become a great preacher and teacher of the Word of God while in England, And it was this John Newton who wrote, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Newton was a great preacher of grace, and it's no wonder. He had learned what Paul knew and what all Christians eventually learn. Grace is of God, and it's always unmerited. It is to the undeserving, to you and me, that the offer of salvation has come. But grace abounding, what does that mean? Grace comes in small ways, and in ways that overwhelm us. A good example is a young man working as a waiter in a small restaurant in eastern Kentucky. His boss paid him minimum wage, and he survived off tips. One day, his boss decided to give this boy a raise. The boy had not really earned it. He had only been there a week or so, but the raise was an act of grace from the boss. Then, that evening, the young man gets a call from a family member. His uncle, Fred, had died suddenly and left him a portion of his lumber mill. When it was sold, the boy received $3.5 million. The uncle barely knew the boy, and the gift was unbelievable. The uncle showed undeserved and unmerited grace towards this young man, and it was abounding grace, more than anybody would expect or imagine. God's grace goes far beyond a smile and acceptance. He cleans you up, he loves you, and he has bestowed all the rights of sonship with you. Not many understand this. Not many get a hold of it. And these things are not being taught in detail in many churches today. Pastors assume you get this already, but few get it in reality. We live the Christian life eating crackers and cheese when the Lord has prepared a banquet table for his children. Shame on the shepherds who are not tending the flock by leading them into the greenest pastures, and beside the clearest and calmest of waters. God's grace overflows toward you and me in this life. With great expectation, we await our arrival into heaven, where we will know and experience his grace throughout all eternity. I would ask that you pray for us, pray for me, to see the grace and the love of God in such a way, and that I would understand all that he's given us by grace. God's grace moved him to hang the stars in place so that you could lift up your eyes to the sky and see the glories of his handiwork. His grace created a place for you in this world and the ability to know life. God's grace chose Israel for a particular people, not because they were the strongest or the most in number, but because he unnecessarily loved them. His grace led his son to Golgotha where evil men nailed him to the cross. By God's grace, Christ died for me, and it's God grace that causes me to understand, to realize my sin, and recognize his grace. God's grace leads me to the place of repentance. One man told me long ago that it was not grace that saved me. It was Christ alone. Admittedly, I was in awe of this man, and what he said left an indelible impression in my mind, one that was very powerful, but it was a bit misleading. God's grace is revealed in Christ. Jesus Christ is God's grace personified. John Newton nailed it by saying, Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Grace led me to Christ, and grace, God's grace, will lead me home. This grace Paul spoke of in his greeting to the Philippians. But what about peace? He said grace and peace. Grace wasn't the only word used in Paul's greeting. He added that word, peace. Shalom, means peace. Again, Paul's thinking was not like other men. He had a deeper meaning, which gives us a great deal to consider. These words go beyond a standard greeting. Peace, as Paul had, came from God. I'd fall back on what that man told me years earlier. Christ saved you, and that's true. And Christ gives me peace, and that's true. But how? The grace of God opened my mind to understand all that Christ has done for me. When I was a sinner, Christ died for me. In his death, he bore my sin. Isaiah writes about this, saying that Christ bore my griefs. He was nailed to the cross for my transgressions, and he was crushed for my iniquities, and by his stripes, I'm healed. God, through grace, caused my iniquity to fall on him. So Jesus literally bore my sin and paid my debt sin had me torn up inside. I was afraid of death. I felt guilty and was an angry young man. I thought I was with war with any and all authority, starting with my parents, teachers, the police, and anybody else who stood in my way and did not treat me as I thought I should be treated. When I heard the gospel and understood what God had done, the war was over. I willingly surrendered. And at that time, I knew peace. Keep reading Paul's letter here, and you'll discover what so many other Christians have come to know. Peace. It's all in Christ. But take note of this. Grace comes before peace. Grace always comes before peace. We want to get things turned around at times. Why? Because we're searching hard and long for peace of mind. Understand this. It's not peace first and then grace. No. No. God's order of things always shows us grace before any spiritual benefits are known. This is so that we will know beyond all doubt that salvation is of God. In Genesis, grace came to Noah before the flood. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Before anything else had happened in the story of the flood, Noah experienced the grace of God. Abraham was living in Ur, and he was doing what he was doing until the day called him in his marvelous grace. God's grace appeared before the promises and before the covenants were made. God's first thing was to reveal his grace to Abraham and to establish a permanent relationship with him. Read through the biblical history and you'll see for yourself that God's grace always appears before the individual knows of God's mercy. David, Solomon, Moses, and the prophets, all of them. This is my story and this is your story if you know Christ. Did you experience salvation before God worked in your heart? No. You know, Jesus touched the eyes of Bartimaeus before Bartimaeus saw anything. It would help if you told the same story. If you did anything, if you did anything at all, it was you running away from God and you insisted on having your own way. God had to come looking for you. The fact is, no man seeks God. And if we do not seek him, we can't say... When I found God, no, we do not find God. He finds us. It's because he came to us in grace, seeking us. Has God called you? Is he calling you? You have to respond. God will pour his grace out upon you, and you'll know the peace that passes all understanding. You will know love as you've never known it before. Knowing Christ, you will know hope as well. So Paul says, and I say, Grace and peace be unto you and yours. Amen. We thank you very much for following along in our study on Philippians, and we hope that you continue as we continue with the study here. You are well appreciated, and we hope that this has been of great benefit to you. Thank you very much.